We're continuing in our study of First and Second Thessalonians. And this morning we're looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And to get us started, we're going to read verses 1 through 3. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Let's pray. Father, we do pray as we look into your word that you would be pleased by your spirit to speak to our hearts, not just that we would have mental knowledge, but that we would really come to understand what you're doing and how you want us to respond. So we ask for your blessing. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going in First and Second Thessalonians, um, and today we're going to be looking at God's timetable for the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is that, that great period of time uh, from after the rapture to the end when God destroys this planet and makes a new heaven and new earth. And it includes the judgments of the tribulation period. It includes the coming of the Lord Jesus. It includes the millennial reign of Jesus Christ on earth. But let's do a, a quick review. Second uh, <clears throat> Thessalonians was written probably about two to three months after First Thessalonians. Uh, the situation was the Thessalonian believers were facing continued and perhaps intensified persecution. There was false teaching on the day of the Lord, that, uh, and the false teaching was that they were already in the time of the day of the Lord, and that had come into the church. And besides fear and confusion, this had resulted in some disorderly conduct uh, because of misplaced zeal. Uh, some people had quit their jobs, and they said, we're just... Obviously, the Lord's coming is very, very short, and so we're just going to wait, and it had put a burden on other people in the church. In, chapters, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, after the salutation, Paul tries to encourage the, these believers in their hardship in three ways. First of all, praise for their actual spiritual condition. You know, when you're going through difficult times, sometimes you don't really know where you are spiritually. And so Paul wants to lay it out for them. He talked about their faith had been greatly enlarged. Um, their love for one another had grown greater. And he particularly mentions their perseverance and faith in their hardship. He says, basically, you're doing well. Don't stop. You know, those three things are good tests for us. Where am I spiritually? Well, are you growing in your faith? Is your love for, for other believers and, and for other people around you, is it growing? Are you able to go through hardships, stresses? And it, it, both the words Paul uses in, in chapter one are physical, your physical environment and how you emotionally react to that. Are you showing endurance, perseverance, and faith? Then he looked at some prophetic encouragement, the coming of the Lord, and, and there he's talking about um, the, the coming of the Lord to earth. If you remember, there's the rapture where he comes for the saints, and, 
and then there's the, the coming of the Lord uh, to reign on earth. And it'll be a time of reward. Jesus Christ will be glorified in the revealing of his saints, and we will share in his glory. It'll be a time of justice on those who have willfully rejected the knowledge of God in creation and in their consciences, and those who have willfully rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul points out it includes those persecuting the Thessalonian believers. He talked about the Lord coming from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. And there he, he emphasizes the Lord's authority. He, the highest court is heaven. His power, the, the mighty angels. His holiness uh, in flaming fire. And what he's saying is this judgment will be right. In his holiness, he will judge everyone right. Their sins will be uh, made clear. The motivations of their heart uh, will be made clear. So his judgment will be right. It'll be sure because of his power. It'll be inescapable. And so he talks about this time of judgment. It'll also be a time of relief for believers. We sang about that in one of the songs. No more suffering, no more hardship, no more persecution. And he ends with the prayer. And uh, if you drop down, to, uh, look at chapter 1, verse 11. To this end also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling to fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the point of the prayer is that last phrase uh, or the, at the beginning of verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified in you. Last week I was over and so we rushed the prayer. I want to just spend a little bit of time with you on this prayer because it, it's the culmination of, of chapter one. He says, listen, the whole purpose of our lives is to bring glory to Jesus Christ in that day. And then we will share in his glory. And um, what does that mean? And I've thought and thought about it. And I think the best illustration I've come up with is King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. When you read about Sir Lancelot, Sir Gawain, Sir Galahad, their deeds enhanced the glory of King Arthur. Now, King Arthur was a king. He was a mighty man. He was glorious. But their deeds enhanced his glory. And so we, as believers, when we live for Jesus Christ, when we serve the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of that is revealed in a future day, it will enhance the glory of the Lord Jesus because he sent us to do good deeds in the world. He sent us to minister to the suffering, to the sick, to, to those in need. And he used us to help others and to tell them the story of the gospel that we are sinners and all of us are sinners and have fallen short of God's standard. And all of us are, are unfit for heaven. All of us need a savior. And God sent that savior, Jesus Christ, so that we can be forgiven and given eternal life if by faith we respond and receive him as savior. And, and that message goes out. And it shows the heart of God. And so those deeds enhance the glory of the Lord Jesus. And then as we... You know, servant of Christ doesn't have a lot of glory with it right now. You say to someone, well, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. That, that doesn't impress them. 
But in that day, when Jesus Christ is glorified, King of kings and Lord of lords, who are you? I'm his servant. That day, it has glory. And so he says, look forward to that day. Live for that day. Well, how do you do it? Well, that little phrase above it, where he says, um, you know, that our God will count you worthy of your calling. He's called us like, like you know, what, what an amazing thing for some of those knights to be called by King Arthur to become a knight of the round table. Well, what an amazing thing God has called you to be his servant. And then it says, um, to f- and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. In, in Philippians uh, 2, verse 12, it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then it says, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God who puts those desires to do the work of God, to do those things that display the goodness and love of God in your heart. And he says, listen, don't just approach God in your prayer life saying, all right, God, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do. This is what I want to do. I want you just to rubber stamp it. Put your blessing on it. No, you come. You say, God, what do you want me to do? What can I do for you? Open my eyes to needs around me. Show me the gifts you've given me that I can use to touch this world. And then he says, the work of faith with power. See, the work's always bigger than we are. We need the faith that God's going to meet us with his power. Let me give you an illustration of this. Hudson Taylor was a great missionary to China. All the missionaries were on the coast. There were 11 provinces up in where no one visited in Mongolia. So there were these 12 areas that had no missionaries. Hudson Taylor had figured out that 1,000 Chinese people were going into eternity every um, hour without Christ. He, He imagined in his mind, actually in his dreams, of a huge long line of Chinese, 1,000 across, and every hour, 1,000 of them marched into a lost eternity. And God burdened him. And God kind of said to him, listen, I want you to head up a mission and bring missionaries over. But the, side, the other side of it was he had been in China. He had seen missionaries come over and die from various diseases or have their spouse and their children die from diseases. He had seen uh, missionaries, uh, known missionaries who had been killed by the hostility uh, of, of people in China. And he, he had this other nightmare of men that he had brought over to service missionaries saying to him, I've lost my wife and children. Why did you ever force me to come here? Or, or women and children saying, why did you ever call us to come here? Our husband is dead. Our father is dead. And he had these two nightmares. He lost weight. He became haggard. Someone decided to invite him to uh, Brighton Beach, which is kind of, he was back in England, and, and uh, to t- get a little rest and relaxation. And he was at a church like this, and they were singing songs like we did. And he looked around, and he said, here are all these people happy in, in knowing that they're going to heaven. And out there are all these people lost, and he couldn't stand it. He rushed out of the church. He went down to the beach. And on Brighton Beach, the Lord Jesus said to him, 
you're my agent to call them, but I'm the one who calls them. You will have some care, but I'm the one who's ultimately responsible to protect them and provide for them. It is me calling them, not you. And he gave it to the Lord, and he called. And eventually there was some, something like 1,500, 1,800 missionaries who came to China under his mission. But see, there is that struggle, isn't there? Where God lays a burden on your heart and then you know your own weakness and your own frailty and, and the burden seems too big. And he says, then you got to come to me by faith and trust me and let me work through you in my power. And what happens? In that day, Jesus Christ gets great glory. And so what's he saying to this church? Take up the task. Take up the task. And why did God preserve it? Because it's the same message to each one of us. Take up the task. There are lost people. Take up the task. There are people in need. Pick up the task. Be the hands and feet and voice of the Lord Jesus on this planet so that in that future day, he gets glory. And so that's his prayer. And so now we want to move into chapter 2. Um, one more little rabbit track. Uh, when it comes to prophetic truth, someone has rightly observed this section contains truths found nowhere else in the Bible. We're going to learn some things in First Thessalonians, or Second Thessalonians chapter 2. You're not going to find anywhere else in the scripture. Uh, Warren Wiersbe says... As we look at these prophetic truths, uh, we need to remember the purpose of Bible prophecy is not for us to make a calendar, but to build character. So God's revealing these things, and there's a purpose behind his revealing these things. Not just so we can say, oh, I know I fitted together now. No, it's about our lives. And, you know, the sad thing is we're going to take verses 1 through 12. The church at Thessalonica, they would have continued reading the rest of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3, and you would have gotten the connection between the prophetic information given in verses 1 through 12 and how he wants you to respond. So as you come next week and the week after, and we go through the rest of 2, the first part of 3, and then the rest of 3 over the next couple of weeks, remember this passage, because this is the foundation for how he's going to want us to act. There are two questions you must keep in mind um, as you look at, at prophetic truth. And that is, what has God revealed? That's what God's going to do. And then why has God revealed this? And that's what God want us, wants us to do because he's revealed this truth. And those you have to keep those two things, otherwise biblical prophecy gets uh, unbalanced. So let's go uh, into Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Here's the outlines, very easy, uh, straightforward. Verses 1, 2, the rapture. Verse 3, the rebellion. Uh, the rest of verse 3 through 5, the revealing of the man of sin. Uh, verses 6 and 7, the remo removing of the restrainer. Uh, verses 8 through 10, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And verses 11 and 12, the retribution. So let's look at the rapture. Verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, that with regard 
to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed, either by a spirit or a message or a letter from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. He's talking about the truth of the rapture, and I'm going to bump ahead. We looked at this uh, several times in this passage. There, there are two comings of the Lord Jesus in this overarching Jesus is coming back. The first one's called the rapture, and the rapture is hidden from the world. The Lord comes to the air. It's for the saints, the dead in Christ Rise first, those of us who are alive and remain are caught up together with them in the clouds. There are no signs that precede it. We leave that time to go to the judgment seat of Christ where Christians are rewarded for their service. It's recognized and they're rewarded for their service for Jesus Christ. And then there's this celebration in heaven called the, the marriage of the Lamb. The revelation is when Jesus Christ comes back it's publicly seen. It's to the Mount of Olives. His foot is going to touch the Mount of Olives, we're told. The saints are with him. There are many signs. Paul's going to mention a couple in this passage that precede it. It, it goes on to the judgment of, of the world uh, for their sin, those that are alive at the end of the tribulation period, and it results in the coronation of the Lord Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. The rapture is meant to give confidence and comfort. Back up. Um, in 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 and 10, if you want to drift back there just for a second, um, it, Paul says this, um, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. The, these Thessalonian uh, believers were once people who, who worshipped idols, or some of them were, were, were Jews who, who had grown up in Judaism. They were waiting for the Messiah. Paul's message to the Jews is the Messiah has come. It's Jesus Christ. And now you're called to put faith in him to, to the the Gentile believers that were there in Thessalonica, he says, listen, those idols cannot help you. You need a savior. You, God himself has come in flesh to pay the debt of your sin so that you can be forgiven. Will you receive his offer of salvation? And they did, and they turned from their idols, and they committed themselves to serve the living and true God, and they're waiting for Jesus Christ to come back from heaven. They know he's gonna rescue them from the wrath to come, uh, which first is this terrible time, the tribulation, the day of the Lord, but beyond that, eternal separation from God. I have a friend who's a printer in Omaha, and he's, he's made a, a little cardboard thing. He sent me the model for it. I, I haven't made any of them yet. But on one side, it has the Ten Commandments. And on the other side, it, it says, do you believe that this is God's standard? And then it says... Have you kept God's standard? Second question. And the third question is, if God judges by the Ten Commandments, are you going to be guilty or right in his sight? And if you go through the Ten Commandments, you know what? You come away saying all of us are guilty. All of us are guilty. And so these Thessalonians are rejoicing because Jesus Christ has saved them 
uh, from the wrath to come. And they're waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're so enthusiastic. They're growing and, and they're sharing their faith. It, Paul says all the way from Macedonia where they lived in northern Greece to, to Achaia in, in southern Greece. The report of their salvation and how they've responded to this message of the gospel has, has been reported forth, shouted forth. That would be like something happening here in Marlou and people in southern Missouri talking about it. That's how impressive it was. And so Satan tries to quench it by bringing in terrible uh, persecution. And when that didn't work, he brought in false doctrine. And so he says there in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that this false doctrine had shaken them from their composure and disturbed them. They had been told, no, you missed, you missed the Lord's uh, rapture. You're in this day of judgment. Uh, and, and it shook their faith. And so they're distracted. And, and they're not thinking about serving the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not thinking about sharing their faith. They're distracted from what God's called them to do. They're, they're um, confused and there's division and discouragement. You know, any work of God can expect satanic attack. And we need to be aware of that. God has blessed us numbers-wise. God has blessed us with spiritual growth, the baptisms we've seen recently. Uh, God has, is doing a work, hopefully through our lives, out in the community. And Satan wants to destroy that. And as we go, especially through this building uh, things, where there'll be some, some times where it won't be as nice and as pleasant, it's real easy for Satan to come along and begin to discourage people, to begin to distract, uh, to do some of these things. And Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 3, reminds us that we are commanded to appreciate, promote, and protect the unity of the body. So if people come up and they, oh, burr, 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 and they start murmuring or grumbling, that's good. Talk to them and say, hey, Maybe you need to take that straight to the elders and talk to them. Don't talk to other people. Don't, don't stir up things. Let's keep our focus on the main thing. And that's Jesus is coming. And when he comes, are we doing those things to enhance his glory? That's the main thing. And we need to be sharing with others who don't have our hope. And so Satan has attacked this little group. And so Paul wants to encourage them. And he, he says, look, there's some events. He's going to refer to three particular events that had to occur before the day of the Lord can take place. And they haven't occurred. So it shows that you're not in the day of the Lord. Well, what are those events? Well, go to verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, the, the rebellion uh, the word apostasy literally means falling away. Apostasy comes from the Greek word that is there. It's just transliterated. Um, this is a revolt, a departure, an abandoning of the position once held within the professing church. Apostasy has always been a characterized 
uh, the church almost from its very beginning, but Paul here says the apostasy, referring to a specific, distinguishable apostasy that will come in the future. So there's going to come this time where in the professing church, because in, in a church body, there are people who grew up in the church, They never really have come to personal faith in Jesus Christ, but they grew up in the church or they came because their friends came or they came because they liked the idea of Christianity, but they've never made that personal link to the Lord Jesus. So the the church is, is a mixture of people. And in this professing church, people are going to start walking away from Christianity. And as we get closer to, to this end time, there, this, this apostasy is, is going to be very, very evident. Well, what are some of the things that cause uh, s- such a drifting away? I've listed three here. Uh, evolution, which denies God's existence. And by God's existence, I mean the God of the Bible. Some, some evolutions say, well, I believe there's a God of force But this idea of a personal God who's actively involved on planet Earth, who has a plan for mankind, who has a desire for a personal relationship with with every uh, human being, that God evolution doesn't really understand. And that mankind was created in God's image and to have a relationship with him. The second one is modern education, which mainly has... uh, gotten a hold of the idea of uh, that we're born with a blank slate which education and environment writes on rather than we're born sinners Adam and Eve sinned they became sinners we are their distant descendants we too are sinners it's part of our nature that we are in rebellion against God. And then moral relativism, which denies the inspiration and authority of the word of God, the Bible. And these aren't the only uh, things that attack the truth, but they're examples of how the foundation of the truth are being undermined. A number of years ago, we went through, uh, Dobson has a series called uh, The Truth Project. And it goes through each one of these areas and 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 shows the difference between the world's mindset and the, and the Christian mindset. If you're interested in something like that, I know we did a lot of small groups in it. Uh, Bob Smith Jr. has access to some of those things. Uh, one of the big stories this last week was uh, they did the census in England, and for the first time in the history of England, less than half the population said we're Christian. And it was a big, big story in, in England. There is this drift away Dave McLeod at Emmaus did an article on uh, people want to be spiritual, but they don't want to be Christian. And so there's this idea, I can be spiritual, I can kind of commune with this God, but I I don't believe what the word of God says. And so there's this movement that's going to pick up pace, this apostasy, this this moving away. And then there's the revealing of the man of sin. Uh, Verse 3, let no one deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, 
so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as God. Um, this man of sin, this individual that's going to arise and, and play a major role during this time period after the rapture. He has a lot of titles in the Bible. Uh, Daniel 9.26 calls him the prince who is to come. Uh, Daniel says in the last days, in fact, the tribulation period, the seven years, is marked by a treaty signed between this man representing this last world empire that, that Daniel has uh, pointed out in chapter 2 and chapter 7 and chapter 8. Uh, this leader is going to make a treaty with Israel. And uh, he's the prince, he's called in Daniel 9.26, the prince who is to come. In Daniel 11.36, he's the willful king who exalts himself above um, every god. And in this, in this passage we're looking at, he's described as the man of sin or lawlessness. He's the very embodiment of sin and rebellion against God. He's the son of destruction, the one who's doomed to eternal destruction. There's this person who's going to show up in the last days. And, and he will read more about him later in the verses. The term Antichrist is only found in the writings of the Apostle John. Um, there are a lot of other descriptions in Revelation of, about him. The Greek preposition anti has two meanings. Against, in opposition to, and instead of, to replace. And you see both of these uh, there in verse 4 who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. This person is going to be anti-religion. He'll start off, uh, Scripture seems to reveal, he'll start off uh, heading up a, a worldwide ecumenical movement, but he's opposed to it. He's, he's against it. Eventually, he destroys uh, it, and then he replaces it. So he takes his seat in the temple of God, in Jerusalem, a, a temple will be rebuilt. The Jews, the Jews are already, um, they've been collecting money for the last 30 years. They are making the gold bowls, the, the knives. Uh, they've made sets of priestly garments. Uh, they are making all the preparation for a temple because they're planning on having a temple. And they'll set up this temple. And in the middle of the tribulation period, this, this man of lawlessness will reveal his true character. As he comes into Jerusalem, he goes into the temple, to the Holy of Holies, the place where, where the God of Israel dwelt, and he sets up his throne. And he declares himself to be God. And so there's this, this individual, but he cannot be revealed. Uh, in fact, Paul uh, says in verse 5, do you not remember while I was still with you, I was telling these things? He said, these things I'm writing you, I, I spoke on in greater detail. This should be a, a reminder that we've talked about these things, that I had revealed these things to you. He goes on, verse 6, and you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. There is a restrainer. Um, 
the identity of the restrainer has, has been suggested. Lots of things have been suspected. Uh, some said it was the Roman Empire, some the Jewish state. Some say it's human government. We do know human government was given to restrain sin. Uh, some say Satan, some say God, some say the Holy Spirit. Uh, some say the Holy Spirit in the, in the church as he indwells the church. Um, so which is it? Who is this restrainer? Well, we get some clues here. Notice it says in verse 6, what restrains? And down in verse 7, it says, he who now restrains. In one case, it's used in the neuter um, sense. Uh, Greek had masculine, feminine, and neuter articles. And so it uses the neuter article in verse 6. It uses the masculine article in verse 7. And what's interesting is the one thing that you find that a lot of is of the Holy Spirit. The word Holy Spirit is in the, the neuter case in, in Greek. And so in John 14, 26, and in um, John 15, 26, 16, 8, 13, 14, um, you'll have this case where it'll talk about the Holy Spirit in the neuter case, and then it'll immediately say he. The Holy Spirit, I'll send the Holy Spirit, and he will indwell you. And so you have this combination. And so the idea here is that it is the Holy Spirit. Well, where is the Holy Spirit mainly today? In the believers, in the church. When a person comes to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, the Holy Spirit comes to permanently indwell them. In the Old Testament, he came upon people for a short period of time for, for, uh, to empower them to do certain things. But for us, he comes to dwell within us permanently. And so we are called salt. Salt preserves things. It keeps corruption away. We are called sons of light. Light dispels darkness. And so um, the ch God uses the church to restrain evil. Years ago, um, I worked for a real estate company. Everybody in the company were believers. And we were buying a franchise of a company, and they really weren't. And uh, so we had had this big meeting. And after the meeting, everybody had red vehicles. And after the meeting, some of the guys were going out to the bars and, and some other places of less repute. And uh, so they were, we were all lining up together, and a red car drove up. And so a bunch of these guys from the other group, they were cramming into the car because they were headed off. And all of a sudden, the guy going in the car starts backing up. And they're trying to push him in, and he's trying to back out. And he turns around. See, Bob Smith was our, the head of our company, and he's a Gideon. He hands out Bibles. He'd given a lot of these guys Bibles while we were down there. And they said, it's the Bible salesman. It's the wrong car. <laughs> and, and so they all backed away. <laughs> See, there was some restraint. You don't know the power the church has to restrain evil because we're there. But when the church is removed, evil is going to go wild because there's not people at work 
who, who bring restraint. There's not people saying that's wrong. There's not people out there. The Spirit of God will still be here. He's still going to save people. Revelation 7 says there's a huge group of people that will be saved during the tribulation period. But evil's going to have its day. And so when the rapture happens, the Spirit of God will still be here like he was in the Old Testament. But this tremendous presence where he's indwelling millions of people, it's going to be gone. And he says in verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The mystery mystery in the Bible is something that hasn't been known. It's now being revealed. This lawlessness is out there. It's pressing and pressing. But God has the church here to, to hold it back. But when the church is gone, It'll press ahead. And so he says in in verse 6, and you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he'll be revealed. God is in control. And he's using the church to hold it back. But when his time comes, God pulls the church out. And it comes. And that brings us to the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 8. Then the one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with power and all power, signs and false wonders and with all the wickedness, deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive love of the truth so as to be saved. Lord Jesus is going to come into this maelstorm of of sin and, and wickedness, there's famine, there's war, there's, there's all kinds of things that are going on as, as wickedness is set loose and, and Satan is energizing this one, uh, the Antichrist, the lawlessness one in, in his activities. And the Lord Jesus comes. It's not a big battle. By the breath of his mouth, he destroys this man. By the, the brightness of his covering. One word from the Lord Jesus is enough to end the career of this man, to slay him. Um, He goes on and he says, this man is empowered by uh, Satan. Um, And the method that's used is counterfeiting God's miracles. Notice the words power, signs, and wonders. Those are the exact same words in Acts 2 to describe the acts of the Lord Jesus. And in Hebrews a 2-4 to describe the acts of the apostles. You know, a miracle simply says there's something supernatural at work. It doesn't guarantee that it's God who's doing it. And, but notice it's called lying wonders, false wonders. These are, these are miracles and, and amazing things that are done to deceive people so that they will believe um, It says at the very end, they did not receive love of the truth so as to be saved. Um, These people are going to be deceived into following this man, the Antichrist. You know, the the Christ-rejecting world is going to have someone else who claims to be a God-man. They rejected Christ. And Jesus said in John 5, I come in the name of the Father, and you don't receive me, this man will come in his own name, and you'll receive him. And it's because of these miracles that God allows them to do. 
There's a spiritual principle here I want you to catch. When you reject the truth, it makes you vulnerable to Satan's counterfeits. And by the way, that works on Christians too. If I don't respond to the word of God, if I reject the word of God, it opens the door for deception. It opens the the door for problems. Well, lastly, retribution. Verse 11, for this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they'll believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe in the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. When people refuse the truth of God, God lets them experience the consequences of falsehood. Here, God sends a deluding influence so they'll believe and it's, it's what is false is really the lie. What is the lie they're going to believe? They're actually going to believe that this Antichrist is a God-man because of all the miracles that he does, because of all the power he has. They're actually going to say, this guy really is. And they're going to believe that lie. And the result is um, God, God allows that because they rejected the truth of God. And the result is judgment. In order that all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in unrighteousness. Well, what lessons do we pull out of this? First of all, encouragement. God's uh, in control. God knows all about this. God knows it's coming. God can tell us ahead of time it's coming. It, It shouldn't shake us. God's in control. Number two, Live in light of the truth that's been revealed. As we come the next two weeks, these are things God is saying to you and I in light of what we've learned in chapters one and two. Be here with a heart that says, I know what God said he's going to do. Now what does God say I need to do? Live in light of the truth that you have. And then number three, a warning Don't lightly reject the truth. If you're here this morning, we said this last week too, if you're here this morning and death were to knock on your door and you don't know where you're going to spend eternity, you need to take a very serious look at the claims of Jesus Christ. And if you need help, there's booklets we can, we can give you. There's people you can talk to. I'd be glad to talk to you and open the word of God and show you what the word of God says about how you can know for sure you're going to heaven. That's the heart of God. He desires that all men are saved, that everyone comes to heaven. But he gives the truth and he gives you the opportunity to say, all right, I'll look at it and I'll listen to it. Or the opportunity to say, no, I'm going to go my own way. And he tells you exactly where that way will take you. Don't lightly flit around the truth and reject it. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you that these events happened to Thessalonica and because of that, we, you give us help to know what's ahead so that we can ha- face it with confidence in, and trust you 
and live our lives in a way that honors the Lord Jesus in that day. So Lord, as we go ahead the next couple of weeks and talk about how you want us to live, help us to have ears to hear. And if there's anyone here, Lord, that, that isn't certain uh, about the fact that they know your son, we pray that you would just trouble their hearts and uh, bring them to your son, whom to know is eternal life. Because we ask it in Jesus' name.